Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, <laughs> it's good to connect with people. Just, you know, do you understand right now coming to church is very different than it was a year ago? Back before March, I get up to preach and people would, you know, look at their watch and yawn and, and be like, oh, here we are again. Doesn't matter. We'll be here again next week and the week after that because it's always been like this. Now, there's a bit of a risk in coming here. I mean, you actually took your life in your hands to come to church this morning. On some level, there is a risk. I mean, some people have masks, some people don't. Totally get it. Hey, if you wear a mask, that's fine. Totally fine by me. I I actually, actually was not cool with it at first, and then I was standing in line at a grocery store, and the person behind me, I knew, and they didn't recognize me. And I knew that if this person recognized me, we would have like a half hour to an hour long theological debate. And suddenly, instantly, I was a fan of masks. I was like, this little baby just gave me 30 minutes of my life back. Saved my whole day, protected my joy. I'm like, I'm loving this, this is great. Not only that, but I look like a ninja half the time. It's so cool. I was outside of the hotel this morning and and feeding horses. So weird. It's just so cool. I mean, it's like, I just love it. I'm standing outside of this hotel. I'm like, here, want some grass? Wow, you do. This is kind of amazing. And, and here this total, this total stranger walks up to me and he's like, uh, looks at me up and down and goes, are you a priest? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I kind of am. And <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> probably should go back and find him again and clarify that again. Anyway. All right, I'll get serious in a second, I promise. All right, um, <laughs> got a couple of things. I didn't mention any of this last night, so Justin's going to help me out with this today. I've got uh, just a couple of resources with me, that just USB thumb drives. One's one I've had for years, but people just keep giving me incredible feedback on it, so I keep bringing it around. It's called Project 24. It's 24 hours of teaching on identity. Um, God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you, which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then here's the question. What did he know? Because what he has known about you from before the foundation of the world is who you really are. And you have one assignment in this life, and that is to discover what God has always believed about you and to agree with that. So that's Project 24. And uh, then there's this one. Uh, This is 10 hours of teaching on the book of Revelation from a New Covenant perspective. I promise it'll freak you out. Do you know that there's more than one beast in the book of Revelation and that it's actually appeared in the Bible before? Do you know that the word antichrist never appears at all in the book of Revelation? Do you know that there's actually more than one antichrist? They showed up back in 1 John and they're still around today. I've met a few. You might have two. You might be one. Who knows? Um, in which case, welcome, welcome to church. Glad you're here. 
Uh, <laughs> so this is 10 hours of teaching on Revelation from a New Covenant perspective. It'll, it'll freak you out in the best way possible. And uh, when we were creating these things, I said, we got to get some really nice packaging. And this guy goes, no, man, just put in these little plastic bags. You don't even have to like get labels. Just put a little smiley face on it. And I was like, why would we do that? And he goes, this is the same exact packaging I used to buy my drugs in. So, have fun with that. I really do applaud you being here this morning because it cost you something to come. And and I feel like preaching to, to a room filled with people is something I'll never take for granted again. I think it's G.K. Chesterton said, the greatest way to learn to love a thing is to realize that it might be lost. And uh, wow, when these gatherings stopped happening, at least in our world, suddenly I realized I, I, I miss people. I miss their face. I miss their countenance. And, uh, but God is doing an amazing thing in our day. He is. Now, God didn't do this coronavirus thing to us, not what he does. You don't see that in the life of Jesus. Nobody ever came to Jesus and said, hey, can you heal me? And Jesus never said to anybody, ah, you know, the Father gave you this disease to make you a better person. It doesn't happen that way. Say, so, well, you know, can't, can't sickness, you know, shape my life? And Yeah, absolutely. How you respond to adversity and suffering can absolutely build your character. There's no doubt about it. But that doesn't mean that he was the author of the adversity and the suffering. He takes what the devil meant for evil and turns it for good, causes all things to work together for good. And so uh, he's not doing this to us. Jesus doesn't give you sickness to make you more like Jesus because he's not sick. Okay? So, but in the middle of all of this, what God seems to be doing, as far as I can see, is he is completely destroying the idols of our certainty. He's literally dismantling the idols of our our certainties, our security, and our definition of what it means to be safe. Our safety and security, I think, for most of us has been in our financial stability, in our jobs, in in the stability of the plans that we make that give us the ability to see that I will be able to survive and stay as comfortable as I am now into the future. But the reality is certainty is an illusion. Always has been. Anybody who's ever had their life instantly reshaped by tragedy knows that certainty is an illusion. And I think God doesn't mind letting our certainties die when there's the certainty becomes the idol that we worship at more than his presence. In other words, when our certainty becomes our safety and our security and closes our ears to hearing his voice, which it does. See, comfort has a way of doing that. Comfort and leisure have a way of making us go, whoa, I like this. Don't change a thing. To the point where even if God came and said, hey, come here. I got, I got an assignment for you. I got something I'd like you to do. But wait, wait, wait I, I just want to hang here. It's almost like we just close our ears off. And God doesn't mind allowing those things that would block our hearing of his voice to die. Even if those things are good. Because really, when it comes down to it, all we have in this life is connection to the heart of God. Uh, listening to the voice of God and responding with a resounding yes to what he's inviting us into. And uh, 
I talked about this a lot last night um, with the crew that was there, and I think they're going to post that message last night. But I want to I touch on it. I told them, I warned them last night. I said, I got something burning in my heart over the last 48 hours that, that I think is for this moment, for this house, and I'm going to preach it twice because I'm kind of excited about it. It's kind of like when you play a song, musicians, JD and whatever, you get up and you play a song, and it's like, man, that was cool. I'm going to do it again. So I told them, I'm going to do something I've never done before, and that is I'm going to preach the same message twice. But, but this will be a part two this morning. So I'm just going to recap a little bit last night on what we talked about. We talked about how God is destroying the idol of our certainty, but what he's doing is he's actually dismantling our expectations that exalt themselves against what he wants to do in our lives. So we talked about how the disciples, they had, uh, they had this amazing moment with God where he invited them into a relationship. He said, come follow me. And normal, average, everyday people who had no special skills, gifts, or talents dropped everything to come and follow Jesus. And when they did... They left, I mean, they leave everything behind. They're a complete blank slate. It's an amazing time to be in because now all they're doing is watching and doing what he's doing. But then what they see starts to create expectations in their heart because they see their master has superpowers. He can raise the dead and he can heal the sick and the lame are walking, the blind are seeing. And they have this enemy, which is both the religious system of the Jews and the political system of Rome. And they're both really corrupt and they're hugely oppressive. And this is the biggest problem they've got. So you're looking at Jesus who just raised somebody from the dead and you're thinking, what could this guy do with my biggest problem? And not only that, I think he's, he's actually planning on doing something about it because he's talking about this thing called the kingdom all the time. And if he's setting up a kingdom, which their only reference point is an earthly kingdom, if he's setting up a kingdom, then that means we all have positions in this kingdom. Now, a king only has one right and one left, which means out of the 12 of us, only two of us get the right and the left position, which means which one of us gets it? Who's the greatest? Two disciples get so desperate to answer this question, they even get their mom involved in the argument. How desperate do you got to be to get your mom involved in an argument with Jesus about who ought to be the greatest? Mom, go ask Jesus if we can be the greatest. I mean, that's that's what these guys do. It's weird. (laughs) Jesus going, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, and then suddenly he dies. All of the expectations they built up are now completely shattered. And when your expectations, even if you think they're godly and they're good, When your expectations absolutely get shattered, suddenly disillusionment, doubt, discouragement comes in. It's okay. It's actually part of the journey. It's all right. He doesn't condemn them. And when he shows up after the resurrection, he he looks at these guys and says, receive the Holy Spirit as the Father sent me, I send you. And now he commissions these guys whose lives have been stripped all the way back to where he initially found them, and that is no expectations at all. And now they live fearless. See, because when we build expectations, the bigger our expectations get, the greater our level of fear gets because now something can be lost, something can be taken from us. But when you realize the kingdom of God can never be threatened, can never be overthrown, can never be taken from you, the identity of being in Christ is eternally yours. It's who you are. It's what defines you. You suddenly have no fear. Why? Because I have no expectations. Zero. All I have is moment by moment surrender to the voice of the Lord. 
And so we talked about last night how if the, if the, let's say if the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to go out and preach in another country and I want you to reach 10 million people. And you're like, I have no idea how to do that, but whew, I surrender. That's your call on my life. I say yes to it. It's not your ambition. It's his call. And you're just responding with a surrendered yes to his call, right? It's a big difference when it's your dream and his. If it's your dream, you'll burn out because you're the fuel for your own dreams, but when it's his desire for you, there will be a supernatural grace that will actually bring the call about to the point where when you succeed, when you've finished the call, when you've gone through the entire process and you've actually done what he called you, he's called you to do, there's no pride in it. It's just continual step by step into humility because all you've done is just responded with a yes to yes, 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 yes to his voice. It was never about your strategies. It was never about your marketing ideas. It was never about your plans. It was all about your surrendered yes to his voice moment by moment. And so... <clears throat> God has a way of taking our expectations and going, huh, I see those expectations actually are, are a wall between you and your destiny. So we're going to take those out of the way. Demolishes our expectations. Now he sends the disciples out to go do crazy things. So God can tell you, I want you to reach 10 million people here. But then he goes over to somebody over here and, and they go, Lord, what do you want me to do? What, what are you asking from me? I, I give my life completely to you. And they say, that's, God says, that's great. I want you to take that little closet over here and I want you to set it up as a prayer room. I know a few people this happened to. I want you to set it up as a prayer room. You don't want me to travel anywhere? No. I want you just to take some time every day and I want you to go in there and I want you to put these names up on the wall, these pictures of these missionaries, these people, and I want you to just call them out by name every day. I want you to pray what I'm telling you to pray. Well, they'll never know it. That's not the point. I just want you to do what I'm telling you to do. See, I think when all is said and done, they both get the exact same reward. Because the only measure of success we have in this life is all is surrendered to his voice. Whatever he happens to be telling you and I to do. Now, listen, if you spent your entire lifetime saying no, 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 or turning your, your heart and your ears off to his voice, but today, let's say you're, you're in the autumn of your life and you're like, oh, I've wasted it all. I, can I ever get that back? Absolutely, because God can redeem more in 10 minutes than you've screwed up in 10 years. One surrendered yes to his voice can absolutely erase an entire lifetime of walking away. And really, it's all about his grace. We only surrender to his voice in the context of the finished work of what he's already done. We don't surrender to his voice to try to attain something. He already said you're, you're holy and perfect. So we don't surrender to become something. We just simply surrender because we're dead to self. That's it. Dead to self and alive to Christ. So, that's what we talked about a little bit last night. And then we went to Genesis chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. And I want you to take, take you through a story that I think is really a fascinating one. And then I'm going to do an illustration I didn't do last night. But in Genesis chapter 4, it's the story of Cain. And in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 4, God comes to, or Cain and Abel, uh, these two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve, the first humans, Cain and Abel decide they're going to have a worship service, uh, an offering service to God. And they come to worship the Lord together. Now, one is a farmer and one has herds. And so Cain brings vegetables to God and Abel brings meat. God loves Abel's sacrifice, doesn't much care for Cain's, which should say a whole lot to us about the fact that God likes 
meat. I'm just, I'm saying, if you're, if you're a vegetarian, no condemnation, but okay, anyhow. I just think that's fascinating. Every time I cut into a medium rare steak, I'm just like, thank you, Jesus, for inventing cattle. <laughs> this is how I bite my cattle. That's the way I sing it. I don't know about you. Anyhow, <clears throat> so <laughs> I've totally ruined that song for you now, haven't I? It's, from now on, you'll be like, oh, I can't sing that one anymore. <clears throat> it's okay, stick around. I'll ruin some more. Um, so, so, so God comes to, to, to Cain, and he says to Cain, he says, hey, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? And this is interesting, because you guys know the story of Cain and Abel. Most everybody in here probably does at some point. You'd be like, wait, didn't Cain murder Abel? Yeah, that's actually right, but this hasn't happened yet. And in Genesis chapter 8, down around verse, uh, verse uh, 6, middle of verse 6, says, why, is you, why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. There is so much revelation. Revelation in this verse, and I just want to pull it apart for you. And those of you who were here last night, this morning you'll get it if you didn't get it last night. God comes to Cain and he says, ah, I noticed you're angry. How does God notice he's angry? Because his countenance shows it. In other words, it shows on his face. Your face carries the image of God. Do you know that? Yeah, God made man in his image and after his likeness. You mean, wait, wait, this is what God looks like? I thought God was spirit. Yes, it's true. But see, what God does is he actually mirrored his reflection in humanity. Because when he created you, he created you differently than he created anybody else. God creates man literally by speaking to earth and saying, let the earth, basically, let the earth bring forth. He speaks and, and all this stuff comes to pass. But then when he goes and scoops up mud and dust from earth, instead of just speaking, let the earth bring forth, he speaks a word that goes like this, Yahweh. It's the breath of God word Yahweh is Yahweh. It's actually the very first word and the very last word that we say in life. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or an atheist. Every person with their first breath and their last breath breathes Yahweh. Because that's what breath sounds like. Yahweh. And God takes and lifts up mud and dust and, and he goes Yahweh and breathes his very spirit into dead earth. And man is formed as a divine convergence zone between heaven and earth. This amazing melding of the physical and the spiritual together. No other creation on earth is made that way, by the way. Nobody else. It's like the very DNA of the spirit of God is injected into earth and forms man that reflects the very image and likeness of God. Man's very first conscious experience that we ever have is to open our eyes to behold the face of a father that adores us. We were born and birthed in a face-to-face encounter with God. It's where you belong, by the way. So, but nobody can see God and live. Yeah, but then one day God comes to David and, and said, seek my face. Because David responds, Psalm 103, he says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said unto you, okay, I will. Because see, in David's day, nobody thought you could see God and live. And then one day God comes to David and goes, seek my face. And David's probably thinking, yeah, it's funny, because if I look at you, I'll die. Seek my face. Are you kidding me? Seek my face. What a way to go. Okay. (laughs) 
That's where we belong. We were born in a face-to-face encounter with God. Now, people often ask, what's the difference between the image and likeness of God? Well, the image of God is his attributes, the fingerprint of God literally stamped upon every human being that has and will ever live. You look at people, you see the image of God upon them. Somehow, some way, in some, somewhere you can see that, that image of God. But the likeness is the application of the representation of those attributes. The only way that the image of God is redeemed to us is with our surrendered yes to the Spirit of God because it's the Holy Spirit that teaches us how to represent that image into the place where we actually reflect his likeness. Does that make sense? Okay, so every person in here, you carry the image of God on you whether you want, whether you want to or not. But when it comes down to it, we only redeem the image of God in surrender to let his Holy Spirit guide our lives. All right, so... <clears throat> God looks at Cain and goes, your countenance is showing that something is going on in your heart. In other words, I can see on your face that there's anger in your heart. And he goes, and here's the deal. If you'll do well, now you have an opportunity, Cain, to respond to something here. You do well, your countenance will actually be lifted up. In other words, you actually have intentional, uh, you, you, you can actually purposely and intentionally affect what's going on here. Why? Because you actually have control over what's going on here. You say, wait, wait, I, I can't change my heart. No, you can't, but you can change your mind. You can't change, you can't change your heart, Okay. And God will not change your mind. But if you'll change your mind, God will change your heart. It's like when my daughter was little. It's like when my daughter was little and I come into her room and she'd be like, Dad, Dad, there is a monster in the closet. I'm like, I knew I shouldn't have let her watch that movie. Okay, so, so I could go, no, there's not. Go to sleep already. Come on. Why be so foolish? No, no, wait, no that's not what I do as a good father. I say... I recognize she's afraid. There is fear, and it's on her countenance. But what's the fear from? The monster in the closet? So this is what I say. I say, Sarah, actually, we don't know if that's true or not, but you're really afraid. So what are you afraid of? Something that may or may not be true? No, you're afraid because there's a thought in your mind. So you're actually afraid of the thought you're having. You've come to part, and you know, three-year-old girl's like, uh-huh. <clears throat> you know, and here I am preaching to her, right? So you've come into partnership with a thought that's contrary to the very nature of God. You understand? So, so this is what I have to say. I say, we don't know whether there really is or not. So until we know for sure, what do you have to be afraid of? You're just afraid of the thought. So what do we do with the thought? We think a new thought. We think a new thought. What, what's a new thought that we can think? And then I go over and open the door and turn the light on. Boom, there's no monster in the closet. So now we know the truth. Now that old thought goes away. And now we can replace the lie with the truth. And most of the time when we partner with an attitude or, or, or something that's contrary to the nature of God, it's because we've allowed ourselves to dwell on a thought in our mind that's not in his. And that's what God is confronting in Cain. He's like, you're angry and your countenance is showing it. And you actually have a choice over what to do here by changing what's going on here. Now, Cain's not going to do that. And then the next thing that God says to Cain is this. Hey, sin is crouching at your door. Now, I love this part. You say, why do you love this part? I love this part because of what God doesn't say. What God doesn't say is sin is in you because of what your parents did. 
See, a lot of times we have this idea that we're stuck with this generational issue of this fallen nature because Adam fell and now we're stuck. Matter of fact, I have conversations with theologians all the time, and this is the common theological argument. Well, Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, but we are made in the image and likeness of Adam, which is why we bear the fruit of the fall. And I'll say, yeah, you know what? That might have been true all the way up until Jesus, right? Because when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he redeemed the image and likeness of God in us, which is why Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, put off the old man and put on the new man that is made in the image and likeness of the one who created him, which means in Christ, we actually are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All, everybody say all. All All things have become new, including your nature. You can have a sin nature if you want one. What's what God says here to, to Cain? He goes, sin is actually crouching at your door. Now, what does a door represent? It represents a barrier between you and something on the other side of it. Who's in charge of the door? Not sin, not the devil, not even Jesus. Because even in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. There's stuff on the other side of the door, but you actually have the power to open the door. In other words, sin is a choice. It's always a choice. Even in the new covenant, it's still a choice. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. In other words, it really wants you. And then God says to him, but you must master it. Now, this is a fascinating word because the word master here or to rule it means to exercise authority or dominion. In other words, when it comes to anything in our life of darkness that is trying to to somehow find a foothold in your heart, it suddenly gives you an opportunity to exercise some level of authority. Now you're like, wait, I didn't know that I was strong. No, because sin has a way of exposing our weaknesses. That's when his strength steps in, right? So now we basically lean on his strength We lean on his authority. We have no authority but what he's given us. We have no strength but what he supplies to us. The Bible says like this, there's no temptation that has overtaken you but what is common to everybody. Temptation has a way of making you feel like you're by yourself and alone. Nobody else knows how I'm feeling. Nobody else knows what this is like. Well, the Bible says there's no temptation taking over you that isn't common to every single person. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with every temptation actually give you a way of escape so that you actually may be able to bear it. He's not looking for for reasons to condemn you. He's trying to show you who you really are. And even if you fall a thousand times, don't let your failures define your identity. Let that, that moment of grace that actually causes you to stand tall in the midst of a lifetime of failures and look back and go, oh my goodness, thank you, Jesus. You, you've never given up on me. It's his divinity that now defines our identity, not our failing humanity, right? So, He says, sin is 
crouching at your door. In other words, it's a choice. It wants you, but you have to master it. Now, even in the new covenant, sin is still an option. And so Paul makes a couple of interesting statements, the apostle Paul. In a couple of his letters, he says this phrase two different ways. He said, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. Another way he says it is, all things are permissible, but not everything edifies. And then he adds to it this phrase, but I will not be mastered by any of it. So this is what he says. Under grace, I actually can do anything. It doesn't mean that everything is allowed. It doesn't mean that God is saying, yes, you can do everything. Oh, yes, I bless everything you do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if I want to go out, this is how free we are. This is how free Christ has made us. If I want to go out and I want to commit some huge crime, more than likely, God's not going to stop me. But that doesn't mean he blesses it. Because just because you have the freedom to do anything you want to do doesn't mean everything is to be done. Sometimes people go, oh, I'm under the grace of God, which means I can pretty much do everything. And so they introduce all kinds of junk into their lives, and they wonder why God doesn't stop them. It's because Jesus didn't die to make you religious. He died to make you free. He has a really high value for freedom. But the encouragement is, hey, don't exercise your freedom in a way that's going to bring you back into bondage. Why would you do that? Who the Son has said free is free indeed. Hey, stay free. It's a great way to be. <laughs> so, so Paul goes, I can do everything, but not everything is beneficial. See, wisdom, the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God will actually teach you all the massive amounts of choices you've got out there. They'll, it'll teach you which choices are beneficial and which ones aren't. But this is what he says. Paul goes, I won't be mastered by any of that. In other words, I'm not going to let anything come into my life that will end up mastering me. That's wisdom. So he says, sin is crouching at your door. It's desires for you, but you have to master it. In other words, we get to learn how to actually exercise authority and dominion. And actually, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful way that we get to learn this. It's, it's, it's wonderful because even when we mess up, there's grace for us. And that's, that's a, it's a glorious reality. And so God, he's made up his mind about you, right? It's not like whether or not God's going to accept you or not. He made up his mind about you long before you had the chance to impress him or disappoint him. He knows who you are, and nothing about what you think about yourself is going to change what he thinks about you, right? So just rest in that, and let that just be kind of your, your foundational defining point for how you do life in this costume. I'm loved and I'm accepted by God. Wow, now I live my life in a surrendered love relationship in this new covenant existence. Am I going too fast? I just feel like it's like this sort of like a river, this sort of like waterfall, this just sort of flowing over all of your, your own insecurities about your own failings and just kind of washing those away. And some of you are like, your spirit's taking a really nice deep breath for the first time in a long time. And I can feel it in the room. I like that. Whew, yeah, I'm loved by God. That's amazing. All right. So he says, it's desires for you, but you must master it. Does Cain listen to God? Nope. <laughs> Cain goes and tells his brother, I just had a conversation with God. I don't know what he says to him, but somehow as they're out in the field and they're talking about this thing, Cain kills his brother Abel. Now, <clears throat> I want you to see how this starts here because this is the very first church service we ever have on record. So what happens in the very first church service 
is, is that 50% of the congregation kills the other 50% of the congregation. So, like I said last night, the church is off to a great start. It's fantastic. And, and Abel, here's the crazy part about this. In Genesis chapter 4, it says, uh, God comes in verse 9, says, God comes to Cain, says, where's Abel, your brother? And Cain goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here we have a, a perspective that is starting to enter into the heart of humanity. And that is a perspective that I'm going to call distance and separation. It begins with a perspective of distance and separation from God. And it, and it goes to where that perspective starts to weave its way into our relationships with each other. So our distance and separation from God now results in Cain saying, I don't know where my brother is, which he does. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, I'm not responsible for him. And so now you see that perspective of humanity is actually part of the idol of certainty that God is dismantling and destroying in our lives. Because one of the things that God has a value for is connection and relationship. And he wants to teach us how to manage relationships so that we actually impart with our words, with our countenance, with our action, with our substance, we impart life to the people around us in everything that we do so that the body has good circulation. It's a super important principle in the kingdom of God. And so he says to him, where's your brother? I don't know, my, my brother's keeper. And God just immediately cuts to the chase and goes, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood is speaking. In other words, you think he's dead, but his blood is still alive. Why? Because the life is in the blood. And essentially, the idea is when that blood spilled into the ground, God it literally says to Cain, the earth has opened its mouth to receive the blood of your brother, and now you're going to be cursed from that ground. As a matter of fact, the ground's kind of mad at you. I mean, this, you gotta, when you read this, you go, wait a minute, what's happening here? Because God tells him, you will try to work this ground all the days of your life, but it will not work for you. It won't yield for you. Now, there's a principle I want you to see here. Let me set it up like this, because this is kind of the big thought that I'm having this weekend. We live in a world right now, as our sister came up and said, 2020 is weird. 2020 is wow, like, whoa. 20, what has happened to 2020? All of the prophets at the beginning of 2020 were like, this is a year of clarity. <laughs> I'm like, I'm friends with some of these amazing prophetic voices. And in mid-April, I called them up and went, hey, how come nobody saw this coming? I didn't hear anybody say anything about a virus. All I heard was clarity. Maybe it's true. Maybe we are getting clarity, but not the way we wanted it. I'll go with that. <laughs> but, but I don't know about your 2020, but from where I'm standing, 2020 is bizarre. It's bizarre. We live down by, down by Disney World, right? So Disney World has 94,000 employees in that one area alone. They all got, like, furloughed all at once. You know what happens when you take 94,000 people that are gathered together in one very close proximity and you put them out of work at the same time? 
wow, it was like an apocalypse in our world. Like suddenly there's well-dressed people standing on the side of the road with a sign going, I know we're all out of work. Any extra money, you gotta be great. I mean, it was insane. People trying to file for unemployment in the state of Florida. There is nothing that will challenge your Christianity more than trying to file for unemployment in the state of Florida, I promise you. It, it was nuts. People got crazy. They got desperate. Now we got this weird virus, this strange disease. Is it going to do this? How long does it last? Is it in the air? Is it on the surfaces? I go the first time I go to fly, I walk into Orlando Airport. Every business is shut. Most of the lights are off. I'm the only person in this mile-long sea of TSA checkpoints. And I'm looking around, and, and there's more people waiting to scan me than anybody that's waiting to be scanned. I get on a plane. There's six other people on this plane. And the, the pilot literally comes up to me and goes, thank you so much for flying with us. Like, seriously, thank you so much. for." I'm like, what is happening in this world? I get to the very first meeting I was doing, and I get there, and I don't know why I'm telling you the story, but this is going to matter to somebody. I get to the very first meeting I'm doing in this, in this town where... Um, this pastor of a predominantly white church, pretty much all white church uh, in the South, says to me, he goes, I got to tell you something just happened to me. It's when I first land. He goes, so yesterday I get this call from a pastor in town and he, uh, he says, there's a Black Lives Matter rally tonight going on down at the courthouse. I just wonder, would you be willing to come down? He said, I'm afraid it could turn violent. Would you just be willing to come down and and pray, and he said, he goes, I, I, now you got to understand this pastor, in his history, masks are kind of a big deal, masks with hoods, but masks nonetheless, I mean, that's his family heritage, if you know what I'm saying, now he's getting challenged, and he hears the Holy Spirit, first he says, I'm not going, no way, why, because I'm going to lose half my church, and then he hears the Holy Spirit say, go. And he can't shake that because the Holy Spirit doesn't mind making you uncomfortable. He just doesn't. I've realized that. That's why he's called the comforter because comfort is what you need when he shows up. So, so he goes, I don't tell anybody in my church I'm going. And he goes, I'm down there and I get up and I take the microphone and he said, and, and I look out at this sea of faces that is just glaring at me. And he said, and tears fill my eyes. And suddenly I have this overwhelming compassion for them. And he said, and I prayed the gospel. And when I got done, people came up. So would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? So people started getting healed. Crazy stuff started happening. He goes, so I don't know what's going to happen tonight in our service. Well, when I got up to preach that night, I looked out at a church that wasn't a white church anymore. And I'm sitting there just like, watching this diverse crowd of people, many of whom hadn't been to church in years, but because they heard a guy pray and they heard the resonant frequency of heaven flowing through him, now all of a sudden they're like, yeah, well, you got something going on tonight? All the theaters and bars are closed. Let's go to this revival. So they show up, right? Now I'm seeing, I'm seeing people, people who have racist history and past of white supremacy hugging, hugging people who were at the Black Lives Matter rally. And I feel the Lord saying, you see that? It's reconciliation. See that? That's the ministry you've been given. It's really what this is all about, isn't it? 
I'm like, yeah, this is kind of cool. I kind of like this. This is neat. Everything changed. And in the middle of it all, the beauty of God starts shining through. Incredible, incredible. Here's the other thing. Here's another thing that's weird. The weather is weird right now. This environment that we're in right now is bizarre. California's on fire again. And here's the crazy part about it. We got like two hurricanes out in the Gulf. California's on fire. People are like, oh, I, I drove on the way uh, uh, to, to Austin. I drove through a hurricane-ravaged area. It was just ravaged by a hurricane a few weeks ago. I mean, the place is absolutely decimated and destroyed. I'm just looking around like, what in the world? You know, up in between uh, Louisiana and Texas there, little spot just completely devastated. I'm just sitting there driving through all this stuff, and I'm thinking, it's getting weirder. Everything is getting weirder. Now, prophetically, when weather starts going kind of weird, prophetically, people have a tendency to go, well, that's the judgment of God. As a matter of fact, when a disaster happens, what do we call it? An act of God, right? And I'm sure God is like, thanks, and get labeled with that. <clears throat> so people will say, well, it's the judgment of God, right? I want to take you back to the story of Cain and show you something that I'm just seeing now because I've been praying for the last few months, God, what can we do about the world in which we live, about this environment? Because see, here's the thing. I could believe that it's the judgment of God. I mean, like, remember, if there was somebody like in the, in the, in the Oval Office that the church primarily didn't vote for, we would say, well, the weather is reflecting the judgment of God because we elected an official in the office that just, you know. But hey, what's our excuse now? Because let's be honest, I don't like talking politics, I don't, but, but let's be honest. We have, we have a guy in the, in the Oval Office that's confusing because there's never been a more blatantly immoral character in the Oval Office in my lifetime, yet the church has had, never had a better friend. And I don't know what to do with that. I'm just kind of like scratching my head like, what in the world? I just feel like God going, <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> This is what I heard the Lord speak to me one day. Bill, don't, don't you remember that one time I spoke through an ass? <laughs> oh, yeah. So when I speak through somebody, don't think so much about it. And, and, and when I speak through you, don't think so highly of yourself. Okay. <laughs> I just walk by the news and turn it on and be like, no. It's doing it again. <laughs> Click. So, but God can use anything and anybody. And it's really a testimony to his grace rather than our qualifications. Everything that happens is when we, you know, we look at this. But I, I still, I look at it and I go, okay, so we can't, we can't say that it's the judgment of God on the political system because apparently, prim primarily, by and large, the evangelical church is super happy with, with who's in the Oval Office. So we can't blame all of this junk going on on that. So then, what are we dealing with here? Is this just stuff that happens in the world? No, I don't believe so. Why? Because God gave man initially an assignment that went like this. He said to Adam, Adam, name the animals. Now, when he did that, he wasn't saying, give these things something to be called. Because in Hebrew culture, name means identity. In other words, that identity carries a nature with it. And they realized the impartation of a name was actually an assignment of nature.
And so from Adam on down, Adam's very first responsibility is God says to him, I want you to take authority to speak and release assigning nature over the world that I've given you to live in. Adam's first responsibility is to open his mouth and assign nature to the world that he's living in. Psalm says it like this, the heavens were made for God, but the earth he has entrusted to the children of men. In other words, it's been given to you and I to steward. It's a bit of a gift to us, but it's not just the earth, the the rocks, the trees, the grass. It's literally the atmosphere, the spiritual atmosphere that surrounds the earth. When Jesus rose from the dead, see the cross changed everything for us, but 2,000 years later, we still don't fully understand this, but I'm beginning to now. When Jesus rose from the dead in Matthew 28, he says this phrase, all authority, everybody say all, All authority, he says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which is a beautiful mathematical equation when you stop and think about the difference between God and Satan. Because if he has all, apparently somebody has none. Right? Then in the next breath, Jesus goes, now you go. So what is he doing? As the Father sent me, now I send you. With what? All authority in heaven and on earth given to us. Which means we've now been restored back to that place where we have both the right and the responsibility through our declaration, through the abundance of the kingdom in our heart that leaks out through our lips, through the countenance of the image of God that displays the very likeness of heaven on our face to actually shift the atmosphere and change the environment that we live in. Now you say, well, I get the spiritual metaphor, Bill, but I want you to see again the story of Cain and Abel. Gotta help this, hope this makes sense. Help this to make sense. Abel is innocent and righteous and he dies for a righteous cause, doing something good for God. When he dies, his blood pours out into the ground and the environment responds to the cries in his blood for judgment and justice. Listen to this. What is the ground doing to Cain? It's cursing the guilty because of the cries of the innocent. So you get to choose what your heart releases. And whenever we choose judgment, whenever we choose justice and judgment over grace or justice by our definition, Why should we be surprised that the environment and the earth responds by cursing those who who, uh, we've actually set ourselves against in our heart? I think, I'm just going to put this out there and you can just weigh it. I think all the weirdness in the atmosphere and in the environment uh, that's going on around us right now has to do with people made in the image and likeness of God who know the Lord but are responding not with grace, but they're letting judgment fill their blood. And even alive, they're speaking, declaring, posting things out into the atmosphere that are actually causing the earth to reflect the nature of the very cursing that we're doing from our heart. Just let that sink in for a moment. 
Right. Now jump with me over to Matthew chapter 23. And this is an interesting one. Oh my goodness, I'm down to my last seven minutes. Hang on. Here we go. Matthew chapter 23. This is Jesus talking. And in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 34, Jesus is talking to religious leaders. And this is what he says. He says, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them will kill. You'll kill and crucify. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues, and you'll persecute from city to city. Listen to this so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of, he calls Abel righteous, righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. And he goes, this, this is what you got coming to you. Why do they have these things coming? Because they did bad things? No, it's not the, it's not the cursing of our bad actions that actually brings the change in the environment. It's actually the cursing of the innocent people that are subject to our bad actions. See, what we do with our sin is we have a way of somehow bringing out the worst in good people. Your sin messes people up. Do you know that? It's true doesn't just mess you up, it messes the other person up because now they have an assignment they didn't sign up for, which is, oh great, now I got an assignment to forgive you. But I don't feel like forgiving you because I'm totally justified in my anger. So I'm gonna hang on to this instead. Not realizing that forgiveness actually frees the forgiver. See, when Jesus came and he starts his earthly ministry in Luke 4.18, he said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel proclaiming two things, freedom and liberty to two groups of people, captives and prisoners. Think about the difference in the two groups. Captives are in chains and it's not their fault. Somebody else did something and now I got to pay for it. Prisoners, most of the time, are in chains, and it is their fault. You do the crime, you got to do the time. That's human justice. But here's God's justice. I see my kids, and they're in chains. And there's two primary reasons they're in chains. Because of their own actions or the actions of somebody else. Let's just shove aside the reason that you've got the chains on you. Here's my declaration over both groups. Freedom and liberty now. And see, what we don't often realize is when somebody does something to us, even if we're righteous and we're justified, to release grace in that moment actually doesn't let them off the hook. It frees you. And then you actually become a living invitation to that person to discover their true identity. How do we know that? In Psalm 23, the Bible says, God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That makes no sense. There's an enemy there. You should be handing out weapons. Why are you cooking dinner? But perhaps at that table, that enemy might discover that he's actually your brother. Because the reality is, is nobody can be your enemy without your permission. Now, Jesus told us what to do with enemies. He says, love your enemies. Yeah, but come on. You don't know my enemies. And Jesus looks at you and goes, do you know my enemies? See, I got murdered by my own creation. How's your life? I see you can still fog a mirror. Good for you. I got murdered by people made in my image and likeness. Oh, yeah, what did you do? Well, I made a declaration. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Wow. 
Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. If you examine those phrases, you'll begin to see that Jesus was taking a look at the person hurt from the deepest wound, from the most, from the most horrifying circumstance possible. In other words, he was looking at the person who's faced the worst abuse anybody can face and said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Why? Because he wants them off the hook? No, he sees you in chains and he wants you free. And he's giving you the, the key to unlock the door of freedom. But look here, look here, Matthew chapter 23. He goes on down. What has he just said? Hey, pro- you guys are like killing the prophets. You're killing people left and right that I'm sending to you. And then he says in verse 37, this is such a weird verse. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kill the prophets and stone those sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are unwilling. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Let me, let me tell you how this should go. This human justice would read it like this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, you are going to pay, you rotten sinners, and I'm going to protect these poor innocent ones over here. But that's not what he does. He says, you, Jerusalem, who killed the prophets, how I long to protect you. Who is he protecting them from? The judgment of righteous people who are crying out from their blood for justice upon the guilty who are guilty because they don't even know what they're doing. Why? Because they don't know the truth of their true identity. They're acting out something God did not give them. Whenever somebody sins or sins against you, it means they've forgotten who they really are. And we can sit there and curse them and and from a justified standpoint, we can curse them and actually, you know what? If we we see what Cain did, and I can look at other instances in the Bible, we'll go to the very first one. The environment will literally respond to the curse of righteous people because you have that much authority. So go with me now to Hebrews chapter 12 and let's land the plane here. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, here we're in the new covenant now. Look at this. Verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12. You have, in other words, it's already happened. In Christ, this is a present reality for you. You have, this is where you are in spirit. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, as we heard about this morning, to present reality of the, or excuse me, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So there's a lot of people crowding you, okay? And the spirit, there's a lot of people just, just on, your, on your side, got your back. But here it is, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better. Everybody say better. Better, better than the blood of who? Abel. Abel. So I want you to see this. Again, this part doesn't make sense because he's contrasting, the writer of Hebrews here, is contrasting the blood of Jesus with the blood of Abel. Well, there shouldn't be a contrast. It should be a comparison. They're so much alike. Abel was innocent. Jesus was innocent. Abel was murdered. Jesus was murdered. Abel was murdered by somebody who should have loved him, who was connected to him. Jesus was murdered by somebody who should have loved him, who was connected to him. They have so much in common except for this. 
when Abel's blood spilled out into the ground from that place of self-righteous innocence, whatever, totally justified, we can all understand it. His blood looked at the guilty person and cursed him, cried out for justice and judgment, and the ground responded by reflecting to the voice of the blood. And then Cain had to live with that all his life, never a successful farmer, because the earth was mad at him all the days of his life. But Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, being murdered by his own creation, totally innocent, totally justified if he wanted to release wrath and anger, instead, he releases grace and forgiveness. Why? Because grace is in his blood. And as his blood pours out onto the ground, that blood now releases is not a generational curse, but a generational grace that extends all the way back to the blood of Abel and cancels out the curse. Jesus was doing this in his entire life. One of my favorite characters in the Bible that I've just recently discovered, not for any good reason, but I just think he's a fun character, is a guy named Lamech. And Lamech, you may have never heard of this guy, but he's in the descendants of Cain. He's like the great-great-grandson of Cain. And, and Lamech is actually spoken of in Genesis, Genesis uh, 7 or 8. And, and uh, Lamech says this phrase. He doesn't appear much in the Bible, but he has a tremendous effect on, on human history for the negative. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me. Though Cain's vengeance be sevenfold, mine will be 70 times seven. Now this phrase actually gets picked up. You can read it a ton in the Talmud, which is Jewish rabbinical writings, 6,000 pages of rabbinical writings. And this is one of the ways that they justify their own sense of anger and justice. And they'll say this, my vengeance shall be 70 times seven. Now, this is a common phrase now that is meant to actually multiply vengeance upon peop- from people who feel justified. And in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus and he goes, hey Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus sees an opportunity to take a common saying that multiplied vengeance and turn the saying around. And he looks at Peter and goes, I tell you, you don't forgive seven times. You forgive 70 times seven. What is he doing? He's taking this old saying of Lamech, a grandson of Cain, and he's taking a saying that was meant to multiply vengeance and turning it around to multiply grace. Because that's what he does with his speech, his words, and his declarations. And so here's the challenge for us today. What are we coming into agreement with? The blood of Abel or the blood of Christ? I just want to say to you today, grace is in your blood. As new covenant believers, grace is in your blood. JD, can can we do yes, I will one more time? I want to show you a quick illustration here, just in case this, this hasn't made sense to you. And I want to just show you who you are. Actually, Justin, come here. Hold that microphone. Put the microphone up here. All right. All right. So, <clears throat> thank you, Justin. <clears throat> so, here's the way this works. For those of you who are going, okay, you've said a lot of words today, Bill. You've got to draw me a picture. I'm going to do the entire message in two minutes. You ready? Using these two chairs. God makes man 
in his image and likeness, born in a face-to-face encounter with God. This is the way we began. Man says one day, yeah, God, I don't want to follow you. And we think that God turned his back on man, but he didn't. God actually goes like this and confronts man. He gets in our face with covenant because he's inviting us back into union with his heart. And we go, that's amazing. You're gonna forgive me? Yeah. And then a couple of generations go by and we do this again. So God, over and over, does this. And we turn and he just keeps doing this thing over and over. And then one day he goes, that's enough of this. And so he sends Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, We're made initially in the image and likeness of God, but God now shows up in our story and he looks just like one of us. And here Jesus shows up and and we're like, whoa, this is amazing. This is incredible. Look what he's doing. He's healing the sick. He's cleansing the lepers. Do Do we love this? No, we kill him. We kill him. But what does he do? Does he go alone? No, the Bible says he takes you and I with him. He takes, it's good. He takes you and I with him down into the ground, right? But he doesn't just leave us there. He raises us up once again to newness of life. Now, we think a lot of times, okay, one more time. We think a lot of times that this is our relationship with Jesus. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not, right? Or we think that our relationship with God looks like the, my least favorite Christmas song. I hate this one. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not. P- he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. That song scared me when I was a kid. I'm like, you tell me this strange old man sits there and watches me while I'm sleeping, and now you want me to go sit on his lap in a mall? No, thank you freaky. So, so, so this is what we think of God, that he's constantly watching, scrutinizing everything we do. But that's not the new covenant. The new covenant wasn't that we were raised separate from him. And this is where, if, if I had, you're going to have to use your imagination with me. You know those chairs that you can set in and they nest right together? Well, this would be the part where I pick up the chair and go like this. And now we're down. So let's pretend I just did that. That's what this looks like now. Union, no distance, no separation. So when I say grace is in your blood, this is how it happens. It happens because now it is our union with him that defines who we are. John 14, 20, he says, in that day you will know I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. No distance, no separation. So now I can't do anything but do what he would do and that is to release grace in the midst of a world that's gone mad. And that's what I'm saying today. I believe if we'll catch this message, even a remnant of people, you can begin right here to impact the land, the atmosphere, the weather, the attitude and the spirit around this area where people start to begin to reflect something's going on here. I don't know what's happening, but in central Ohio, everywhere else is burning and quaking and going weird. But somewhere up here, there's an atmosphere of peace that's actually literally reflected in the ground, in the weather, in the soil, in the air, in the water. In I think our spiritual condition starts to have an impact on this world around us. Could this possibly be the answer to all the climate junk that we're seeing, the bizarre environmental stuff? Could we spiritually have within us the answer to all these issues that people are trying to solve by their flesh and blood? 
I think it's very possible, and I think if we'll catch this, this season can awaken within us this fresh revelation of responsibility to release the grace of God from within us. It will impact the world around us because grace is in your blood. Stand with me. Mm. So I feel like this, this is a song we're going to end on today because, wow, what a declaration. And make right where you're standing, right where you're standing today, make it an altar before God where you let this declaration be your prayer. <laughs>